1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 25 For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. It's a wonderful verse and a wonderful truth. A truth known by anyone who knows the gospel. The gospel of the cross of Christ. It's a gospel though that is viewed as weakness and foolishness in a perishing world. But those of us who know it, know it is indeed the most powerful force that has or ever will be at work in this world. It is God's wise plan for salvation for heaven and earth. Now we know that. That's why we're here this morning. There's lots of other things you could be doing this morning on the first sunny and warm day in in months, uh, perhaps all year. All sorts of things you could be doing this morning, but you're here because of this reality. The church of God in Corinth that Paul writes this letter to knew it as well. They knew it back to front. But for some reason the, the, the reality hadn't sunk in. This truth uh, was there and they knew it, they could articulate it, but it hadn't touched their lives or the life of the church there. Over time they'd grown prideful and divided and obsessed with worldly wisdom. And so what Paul does in the passage before us today is he gives them a reality check. He destroys their pride, their arrogance and their divisions. Have you ever had one of those reality checks where somebody brings you down a peg or two, brings you back to a level ground where you've got too big for your boots? I remember one of those uh, growing up in my first year out of school. I went along to the Northern District Cricket Trials. It was one of the grade cricket teams in Sydney. And uh, your lower grades were for people like me. But then the first grade team was uh, the sort of people that formed the International Australian Cricket Team. They didn't turn up very often because they were often away on duty uh, for the international team. But there I was at my first ever trial and for the first 10 or so minutes things were going really well. I was coming in off a long run, good head of steam, nice in-swinger going, life was going well and I started to think, you know what, I might do quite well here. And uh, then, uh, then they swapped batsmen and a new batsman came to the net and at first I didn't see who it was but then as I'm coming running in, I'm about halfway in and it occurs to me, that's Mark Taylor, the then Australian cricket captain opening batsman and I'm thinking no it's alright I've got a good rhythm going I'll just focus nice late in swinger he won't see it coming charged in and the, the, the next thing I knew was the ball was fizzing past my ear at a million miles an hour and this happened for the next little while I'd come in ball after ball and he'd belt it back out of the park all of a sudden I realised my place in the cricket pecking order of the world and it was a lowly one <laughs> that's what Paul is doing for us here in this passage Whatever pride or whatever arrogance, whatever worldly wisdom we we come into a place like this with and that's what was happening in the Corinthian church, he steps onto the front foot and he smashes that pride out of the park. And really he does that by asking us to consider two things. Firstly, consider how God works in this world and then consider how we are to work in this world. That's what he's going to ask us to look at in this passage. Firstly, consider how God works in this world. He starts by telling the Corinthian church to wind back the clock. Go back to before you were obsessed with worldly wisdom and your own strength and your eloquence and your your influence over things. Go back to when God first called you, when he called you to repentance and faith in Jesus. Fix your eyes on that moment. Verse 26, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential, not many of you were of noble birth. Truth is, by the standards of the world, these standards that you aspire to, most of you don't measure up. 
When it comes to influence and wisdom and wealth, you are strugglers. Oh, there were some amongst them who were wise and influential, but not many. Some like uh, Crispus, who was the synagogue ruler in Corinth, he was part of them. There was Erastus, who was a key civil leader, a wealthy, influential man. They had all types there, but most of them, if you scanned the pews of Christchurch Corinth, you'd see row after row of people who'd be judged as foolish, weak, lowly nobodies by human standards. Paul says, look at your church. You're a bit too big for your boots. You are a bunch of nobodies in this world. Yes, says Paul, you you like to play this game of make-believe Christchurch Corinth's got talent, but truth is you don't. Not by the world's standards. You, You measure each other by these standards and what ends up happening is because they're beyond your reach, you end up growing prideful and resentful and divisive. And here's where we need to engage with this reality check this morning. The point being made here in verse 26 is not just true of the church in Corinth, it is true of the the church of God all throughout the world. Reality is this is how God works in our world. These are the sort of people he chooses for his church. Nobodies. Take the Anglican church, the Church of England worldwide for example. We've got a strong heritage In some ways wealthy, at least in terms of property, culturally significant and an important cultural place here in the UK. Surely uh, the Anglican Church is an exception to the rule of verse 26. I mean, if you were to describe the typical Anglican, uh, what what would you describe? What would they be like? Perhaps a a middle-aged, middle-class man from Stoke-on-Trent who who likes bird-watching. Is that your typical Anglican? I don't even know where Stoke-on-Trent is, to be honest. But the truth is remarkably different. Verse 26 is the reality. The average Anglican Christian is black, female, less than 30 years old, has three kids, lives on less than $2 a day and walks over three kilometres every day and she's related to someone dying of AIDS. Consider how God works. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of noble birth. Exhibit A, the church of God. Now the obvious question that comes at this point is why? Why would God work this way? Why choose a church with overwhelmingly the majority of people being nobodies? Well we get the answer in verses 27 and 28. It's a decisive answer and it's the the ultimate parent's answer to an inquisitive child. Why? Because I said so. Why? Because God has chosen the church to be this way. There's, There's no accident here. It's not like in recent times the quality in the church of God has dipped. He means it to be this way. The picture we have here in verses 27 and 28 is like that classic gym class analogy where you've got two captains and and the class is lined up against the wall and, and they choose their teams, they choose their friends and then the sporty people and then the popular people and then down to the dregs. But this is how the captain of the universe chooses his team. He lines up every human and he scans along and he sees the beautiful, the clever, the multi-talented, the extraordinary, the funny, and then he makes his choice. I choose the foolish. I choose the weak. I choose the lowly. I choose the despised and the nobodies. That's my team, team incredible. The foolish, weak, lowly, despised nobodies of the world. 
And when God chooses, it is decisive and irreversible. He takes them out of the world and he makes them his church. And it's not just this verse that tells us this, is it? This is the whole testimony of scripture of how our God works. Story after story that Jesus tells reminds us of this. The people he spent time with reminds us of this. The prostitutes, the sick, the sinners. Even God's choice of the whole nation of Israel tells us this. God is permanently disposed to invite to his party by grace alone. Not any other category, not any claim to a right to a seat at the banquet. He operates entirely differently to the way our world does. And consider for a moment the difference this makes. Before we get to, I think, what is the obvious difference in verse 29 onwards, consider the difference it makes to a church like this one. Because I suspect the, the verse uh, here, verse 26 to 28, is meant to give us a bigger jolt than even the church in Corinth. And here's why. Let me ask you, have, have another look at verse 26. When you read it, which category did you put yourself in? The many or the not many? The foolish or the wise by human standards? Be honest. And you're not just answering for yourself. Scan around this room. Who are we together? Are we the, the many or the not many? Here in Leafy Forward, in Hallam, a constituency that has more degrees per capita than any other in the UK, the, the beautiful part of Sheffield. Or how about just to Christchurch Forward? Who are we? If I had a pound for every time I've been told this is the best place to fall ill on a Sunday, the, the amount of doctors and specialists who would rush to my aid all of a sudden if something went wrong. Or at 6.30pm, a balcony up here filled with bright young things who will, who will influence this nation in the future. Even the rest of us are well above par by many human standards. I put it to you, it would be an obnoxious arrogance for forwardites to describe themselves by human standards as mainly foolish, lowly, despised nothings. So read verse 26 again and how do you respond? Well, it should stun you. Do you realise what a miracle it is that you're even here? You snuck in. The odds in this world might be in your favour, but when it comes to God's economy, you're the long shot. You're the not many. Do you know what it took for God to get through to your heart? Do you know the static and the junk and the pretensions and the pride and the achievements and the status he had to wade through to get to your heart? All of that he had to get through. And here's the massive danger, I suspect, for Christians like you and I. We see our status and our wealth and our influence in this world as positives in our lives. We know, of course, that Jesus and what he has done is the big plus in our lives, but, but these other things are good too. But here's the reality check. Each one of them is a liability when it comes to your salvation because of our sinful heart. Each blessing I receive, by human standards a blessing anyway, that comes my way, rather than remind me how good God is, it tells me how well I've done. Every success, every achievement I have, I end up taking the credit for it. Haven't I done well? The more blessing I receive, the more I rely on myself, the more I am convinced I am self-sufficient. It's hard for us not to get totally wrapped up in such blessings to the extent that they become our idols. It's not so much that they replace God in our lives, they just join a pantheon of gods that we worship, the sort of things that prop up our lives. 
Brothers and sisters, if verses 26 to 28 are true, and they are, you and I live in the eye of the needle. That you are here is a testimony to God's powerful and wise grace because it's all too easy for us to end up worshipping in the gutters of our own puny achievements rather than God's achievement in our life. We are made to seek glory, but what we do as sinful creatures is we seek our own, not his. It's an incredible thing that you are here. Our God is powerfully gracious. So there's the first difference it should make. And secondly, it should make us realise that there is no glory in these things that we take pride in. Do you see that in verse 28 and 29? He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God has rendered all the things that we hold up in this world as null and void. There is a profound tragedy at work in our world that that says that, that we're happy to play in the shallow end of glory in our beauty or our intellect or our success. It's a tragedy when our quest for glory stops short of God. And so what God has done in the cross is he has blocked all other paths to glory. He says there's no way there. There's nothing there. You see the word that keeps popping up in our passage when it talks about these things? Shame. You pursue glory there, you won't find it, you will find shame. Now that seems a bit strong, doesn't it? No, says Paul. If you think you have a reason to boast, if you think you have something to be proud of in in terms of what you've achieved in relationships or your career or your intellect, you fail to see why God graciously shuts those paths down. Why he frustrates our wisdom and squashes our power. Do you see it there in verse 29? So that no one may boast before him. So that no one would make that mistake. You imagine that day when all humanity is gathered before God Almighty, before Jesus who will judge us all. There's billions of us there, all who have ever lived in history. The the, the kings, the Caesars, the presidents, the philosophers, the captains of industry, the rock stars and you. The servants, the poor, the criminals, we're all there. What this passage tells us is that as those billions stand before God Almighty, there is not a single person who would dare to stand up, take a step forward and say, haven't I done well? Look at what I did. There's not a single mouth that will boast in themselves on that day because all of a sudden all my wisdom and wealth and power will fade to nothing before him. I will see with clarity that none of that got me there. Standing before him, I will see that I am in no way a self-made man. Now we know this. We know that day is coming and we know that not only on that day but every day before it, we stand and live before him. And so in this place, boasting is excluded. In this place, our beauty, our intellect, our achievements, our influence, we, we don't boast in any of those things. To do so would be ridiculous. How dare we? We won't on that day... But we won't be silent either on that day because we will be boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here you see the the wonder of God's grace to strip away from us our empty boast and to give us something really worth boasting about, something worth bragging in. Forget your beauty or your career or your successful family. Try this for a CV. Put these three things on it. Verse 30, righteousness, holiness, redemption. Righteousness, being accepted by God, getting there on that day and having Jesus, the creator of the ends of the earth, say to you, he's with me. 
holiness, being set apart by God, being able to be near God as you will on that day and redeemed. You want a picture of your self-worth? Try this. You are worth the blood of God's Son. You are worth his life for yours. You are worth him giving up the joys of heaven for your redemption. There's your self-worth. There's your boast. What the cross of Christ does is it takes our status in the world, impressive or otherwise, and it takes, us, takes it off us and gives us the status of the Lord Jesus instead. Righteous, holy, redeemed. So on that day we will boast in him and every day before it we are to as well. What would that look like? To live a life that boasts in the Lord. Well let me draw out two implications from chapter 2, 1 to 5 that Paul gives us. What it would look like to live a life that boasts in the Lord above all else. And what he does for us here in these verses is he says, this is what it was like when I came into Corinth. This is how I lived among you. This is what it looks like to boast in the Lord. The first thing he says is it means that we are going to live as those who are single-mindedly focused on Christ. You see it there in 2 verse 2? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Absolutely everything Paul does in life is tied to the cross. It doesn't mean that the only thing he ever said in Corinth was Jesus died on the cross like some sort of broken record, just went over and over again. What it does mean is everything he did, everything he thought was shaped by that cross. And it meant this for him. It meant he never thought he was the centre of the universe because he knew Christ was. It cured him of pride. You know, the Apostle Paul had many reasons to boast, humanly speaking. If you read Philippians 3, you, you read this CV of Paul and it is spectacular. It leaves most of us in the shade. And then he says this of it. He says, whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, I consider all of that rubbish compared to knowing him. It cures me of pride and it helps me to walk in the way of the cross. To say I know nothing other than Christ and him crucified means that you are prepared to take up your cross daily. That's what it means to accept the cross. The Corinthians were great at taking up their thrones daily or their rights daily. But God calls us to take up our cross daily. And so Paul says in a world where that is the default way of life. I resolve to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. And the life that came from that is one of humble service. A life that leads people to the cross and leaves them saying, what a wonderful saviour rather than what a wonderful Paul. We had to walk in the way of the cross. And secondly, boasting in the Lord will mean we live in weakness. You see it there in verse 3 of chapter 2? When I came to you, I came in weakness, says Paul. If you go to 2 Corinthians 10, 10, you see a picture of Paul there where he, he seems to be really bold in letters, but if you ever met him in person, he was a bit of a lightweight, a pushover, pretty timid and ineffective in many ways. In fact, he speaks of having a thorn in his flesh that physically impaired his ministry. But rather than hide that weakness, he boasts in it because he knows, as far as the message of the cross is concerned, the weaker he is, the stronger God looks, the more glorious God looks. And I think there's a huge challenge for us here, each one of us, who, who tends towards pride in our achievements or our skills or what we bring to this place. It's easy for us to get to the point where we say, yes, I know Jesus saves people by God's wisdom and power, but it's great to have me on the team, isn't it? Well, we might not uh, perhaps be as arrogant to say that about ourselves, but we say it's great to have that person 
here. Let me ask you, what do you think is needed for Christchurch Forward to flourish as a church, to be successful? Or, or if you're in Ed's position and you're starting a church plant and you're gathering together a team, who do you want on that team? Who do you need there for it to work? We know what we should say to that question, but surely our hearts betray us. The Bible says some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. But I suspect here, as with any church, there is a temptation to marshal the chariots and the horses to keep us going. What are those that we are reliant on here? Is it perhaps that our music gets better and better, more professional, so that when people come here they are wowed by that? Or perhaps more engaging preaching, that would be nice. Successful people in amongst us, clever people, able people. I was at a parish council meeting on Monday and you scan across that room and there's some remarkably able people there. A healthy bank balance. Now we know that none of these things in themselves gives this church wisdom or power but we need to do more than lip service. God is not playing games. He works this way. He chooses the foolish and the despised. We've got to stop second guessing him. Or as a lyric to a song I read this week said, we've got to stop helping God across the road like he was some little old lady, like he needed our help. And let me tell you a story that drove this point home to me this week. It's the story of Gideon. He, he was given the job by God to, to take on the Midianites and he was given 32,000 men to do it and he's thinking, yeah, we can do this. And all of a sudden, just before the battle, God says, you know, there's too many of you. If you go in like this, you'll think you did it. So what I want you to do is to go in front of all the men and say, if any of you were a bit scared, you can go home. And so he says that and one person owns up and then eventually 22,000 men own up and he's left with a paltry 10. He's thinking, 10,000, how are we going to do this? And he's about to go into battle and God says again, there's still too many. He says, what I want you to do is go down to the brook and, and you want all the men to have a drink. And so they go down and he says, now most of them will do this. They'll, they'll sort of kneel down and they'll, they'll lap up the water with one hand and they'll keep the other hand on their sword because they know what battle's about. They, they're wise, clever people. See them, they're out. The 300 that are left, the boneheads who sort of put their head in the water and lap it up like this, they're my team. So that no one will doubt who won this day. That's how our God works. And is that not a mirror of the story of the cross itself? How God takes the pathetic figure of Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish rabbi in a Roman world, and puts him in a backwater of Rome at the time, Jerusalem, and he's put to death outside the city on a hill called the Skull. And that's where God has his greatest victory of all, where he defeats sin and death forever. This is how our God works. It's a story of how he works in our world. He wins. He wins through weakness. Let me ask you, who led you to Christ if you're a Christian here this morning? Were they impressive, eloquent, clever? Perhaps they were, but you'd be the exception if they were. I was led to Christ one Sunday night in Sydney by a man called Tony. Uh, By the time I heard him preach, he was well past his prime as a preacher. In fact, uh, some in the church wanted him put out to pasture well, well before this point. He was a ridiculous figure, it seemed, uh, humanly speaking. He had this comb over. And uh, every, every, so often when he'd preach on a pulpit like this, the notes would go flying everywhere and we had to wait five minutes while he collected them all up and put them back together. And at times he was bone-shakingly boring. But I still remember the moment he proclaimed to me the message of the cross. 
this tired old preacher faithfully speaking of God's wisdom and power and it went through me like a lightning bolt and repentance and faith were immediate. That's how God works. That's how we must work. Let me close by asking you to consider the difference it would make. If we work this way, Christ-focused, weak and trembling, then God will powerfully be at work. You see it there in verses 4 and 5. He will send his spirit to work powerfully and he will win. God's spirit is strong to destroy sin and bring righteousness. It is strong to change hearts and bring holiness. It is strong to bring redemption, to, to take broken and dead things and put them back together. Your God is stronger than your idols. And what he wants of us as a church is to get our big heads out of the way and put our puny weapons down and watch as through the message of the cross he wins. And if we do, chapter 2 verse 5 tells us the faith that will result from that message will last. It will last through eternity because it's not propped up by some human trick or skill. It is propped up by God's very power. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Let's pray.